Jackson. I'm a member of the teaching team, so a couple times a year you will hear from me up here, and uh, obviously this morning is one of those times. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was sitting with many of you after church at the Cornette's house, and we were discussing uh, what's next for the upcoming season, the life of our church. And uh, as I was getting up to leave and walked to my, walking to my car, uh, I guess out of habit, I checked my phone and saw that I'd missed three or four text messages. And they all pretty much said the same thing. Uh, like, is this Kobe news real? Did you hear what happened to Kobe? Wow, Kobe, sad. And so, of course, something that was, was clearly wrong, and with, uh, within a matter of seconds, I was able to confirm uh, the news that had shocked not only the sports world, but seemingly the whole world, and that's that uh, the retired basketball star Kobe Bryant had been killed in a helicopter crash. And uh, I'm a lifelong basketball fan, uh, and so this was uh, especially shocking for me. Uh, my experience certainly not unique in that, but uh, you know, throughout the day, as, as uh, the initial shock was, was wearing off, uh, I, I just thought, wow, that's a really complicated legacy. Uh, that, that he leaves. And it's a complicated legacy because, uh, you know, he was, was someone that inspired millions with his relentless work ethic uh, and just his, his tirelessness, uh, competitiveness, and will to win. Uh, and yet his obsession, his obsession to win uh, led him at times to uh, treat people as less than human and uh, Early on in his career, his, his personal life was publicly in shambles for some choices that he had made. And so, you know, we ask, did he treat people well or did he treat people poorly? Or was he a good person? Was, was he not a good person? And uh, of course, it depends on who you ask, right? And that's a tension that we wrestle with with nearly every, you know, famous person who, who passes away. And it's true for each of us, even though our lives are not lived in the public eye. Uh, but that's the paradox of being human, is that, that we're good and, and we're not so good. It, it depends on the moment, and that's the makeup of all of us. And, and it's uncomfortable because uh, it removes easy answers uh, to life's difficulties when, when we acknowledge this paradox. It puts us in tension with ourselves. But if we want to understand ourselves and the world in which we live and understand our relationship to God, we must embrace this paradox. And we must embrace it because to do so is to accept reality. And that enables us to live according to the ultimate reality, the reality of God. And so our text this week speaks to those paradoxes, paradoxes that we experience the most in the most important facets of our lives. And it's a word we hear fairly often, uh, but, but don't always use. Uh, and so I'm not going to slap a textbook definition of the word paradox on the screen, but uh, to lay the foundation, just kind of give you, give you my definition. Uh, paradox is when there's uh, two or more things that seem to be in conflict with each other, seem to be incompatible, but are actually uh, all true. And so I see three paradoxes uh, that, that this text points out this morning. Uh, the paradox of the morality of life, the paradox of scripture, and the paradox of grace. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll dig in. God, we do love you. You're good. Uh, you're good to us. We thank you for each other. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, uh, allow us to uh, spur each other on to love and good deeds and allow your word uh, to pierce us, to change us, and to teach us to be more like Jesus. And we say these things in his name. Amen. 
So we're in Mark chapter 10 this morning, uh, a story that many of you are probably familiar with, but hopefully we can see it with with fresh eyes this morning. And so we're going to be starting in uh, chapter 10, verse 17. Now as Jesus was starting out on his way, someone ran up to him, fell on his knees and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. The man said to him, teacher, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all these laws since my youth. I'm going to stop right here for a second because there's a couple of, interest- a couple of interesting things to note early on as we look uh, at this first paradox, the, the paradox of the morality in which we live. And the first thing uh, to note is that it says this young man ran up to Jesus. And uh, in, in ancient Hebrew culture, it would be very odd for someone to run. Uh, you just didn't see it. People, in a sense, um, likely weren't a lot of times in a hurry, but also it, uh, it, it expressed a, a certain desperation. Uh, people don't like looking desperate, right? Uh, it's, it, if, if, if you saw someone running in ancient, in ancient Israel, it would be kind of like uh, having a bunch of uh, fire trucks and ambulances go down your street. You would know that something was wrong, uh, and you'd stop, and you'd look out the window, and you'd think, I wonder what's going on. Uh, and, so, and so that's what's going on here. This man, he, he runs to Jesus in desperation. And uh, if, like me, your anxiety has ever been heightened to the point of being desperate, desperate enough to look outside yourself, uh, to find uh, difficult answers, to find a life of value. You know that that desperation uh, is a gift. It's a gift because uh, it's, it's an outward sign of an inward humility uh, that, that, your own ways, that our own ways have not led us uh, to the promised life that we had hoped. And the second interesting thing is that Jesus meets his desperation uh, with uh, kind of an odd response. He, he asks a question in response to the young man's question, and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And there's a lot of speculation as, as, you know, to why Jesus answers that way, but um, it, it reminded me of a story that I came across recently of uh, a guy sitting in a cafe. This is a true story. The guy's a writer, and he's sitting in a cafe working, and uh, he overhears uh, some young folks at the table next to him, and they're debating the origins of, of a sci-fi film that was very popular in the mid-90s. And uh, so as he can't help but overhear, overhears them, he, he perks up and he says, hey, I, I'd be happy to clear up some of your confusion. And uh, one of the people leans over to him and says, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, we're not really interested in uh, some middle-aged man who thinks he knows everything to misexplain something for us. The problem was he had written the film. It, it was Men in Black. And, and he had written it, and he said, oh, I'm sorry. And that was that. And what, what Jesus is doing here is very similar. He, he's essentially saying, if you're not going to acknowledge my full identity, I have no need to convince you of who I really am. He, this young man comes, and he, and he calls him good teacher, and then he calls him teacher, uh, but he never acknowledges his lordship. But Jesus continues, uh, and, and he tells him, you know the commandments, hear the commandments, obey them. And the young man says, I've done this as long as I can remember. 
He's essentially saying, I'm a pretty good person. And I chose this text specifically uh, because I can relate. As this young man comes to Jesus, he says, I'm desperate. I'm desperate to find a life of value. I've done everything I know, right? I've, for me, I sit there and I go, look, I, I've grown up in church. I was kind of born a rule follower. I haven't walked through these, you know, major seasons of blatant rebellion. Uh, I've been to church camp, discipleship training, uh, campus ministry, every weekend retreat, Bible study, small group you can be in. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I've done it all, and yet, why does contentment, why does life abundant feel so elusive? I can really resonate with where this young man is. Uh, and so as Jesus asks him, who is good, uh, this young man, and I do this, I do this to myself, and I do this to God often, uh, we have the same response. Well, who's good? Well, I, I think I'm pretty good. Um, and there are, there are centuries-old debates about whether we as humans emerge from the wound good, inherently good or inherently evil, and uh, most of you guys know me. I'm just regular people with a regular day job, so uh, I'm not going to uh, indulge uh, the finer points of the depth of that theology, but uh, I do have an observation to share, and I think you guys will can, can have probably noticed uh, the same thing, uh, is that when we, when we see good in the world, when we come across a story where somebody uh, risks personal comfort, uh, say they, um, you know, risk their personal safety to rescue a baby deer out of a frozen pond, or uh, when unlikely friends strike up a relationship on the subway, or when uh, maybe sworn enemies bury the hatchet and become friends, uh, we, all, we all pretty much have the same response, and the, the cliche that we use is pretty consistent. And you can probably finish my sentence here. We say, faith in humanity restored. That's right. So the default is that we, we clearly uh, do not feel that the world is headed in the right direction. Our default is that we do not have faith in humanity is what we're saying, right? Uh, and, and yet generally we, like this young man, we live life convinced of our own goodness despite the fact that we're discouraged uh, that it seems like the world continues to head in the wrong direction. But the best gut check I know for this is the first two chapters in the book of Romans, and I'm going to paraphrase them. Uh, the author starts out and he tells the recipients of his letter uh, that there are people out there, other people, that practice evil. They practice rebellion towards God. And they practice it so consistent, consistently that they get to the point uh, where they no longer realize what they're doing. It no longer seems evil. It just becomes normal life. But then the author uh, comes in uh, with a surprising punch, and he says, and those of you who judge them are just as guilty. Uh, you're guilty of the exact same types of transgressions because you act out of the same motivations even if your acts are less severe. He's saying there's no moral high ground for you to stand on. One person put it this way. He said that these first two chapters of Romans would be like if we recorded every time that we thought in our minds or maybe said out loud about somebody else. We looked at somebody else and said, this person should do that, that they're not doing. This person shouldn't do that, uh, that they've done. This person should be more like this and less like this. If we, if we recorded all the times that uh, we put a standard on somebody else 
and then turned that standard around and measured ourselves against it, we would fail. Not only, he, he hasn't even gotten to, to the idea that we can't obey the scriptures perfectly. We can't even obey the rules that we've created for everyone else to live by. And so that's the paradox of the morality of life, is that we're, we are good, we're capable of good, we do good things, but we live convinced of our own rightness and our own righteousness, and we're unable to live up to the standards we've created for others in our imagination. But when we embrace this paradox, we free ourselves from looking down at others, and we free ourselves from the offense of others looking down at us. And said another way, we free ourselves from striving against grace, trying to earn our own value. And so that's the paradox of the morality of, of life. Next we look at the paradox of scripture. And if our lives are full of paradox like we've just seen, then we know that one way we can trust scripture is that it not only acknowledges this paradox, but enters into it. So we're going to continue in verse 21. Text goes on and says, as Jesus looked at him, he felt love for him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell whatever you have and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But at this statement, the man looked sad and went away sorrowful for he was very rich. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at these words. But again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and replied, this is impossible. And the disciples are, are watching this whole thing, and they hear Jesus say it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, and they're incredulous. They have the same response that we would. If this guy doesn't have a shot... Who does? He's, he's got moral wealth. He's got material wealth. Uh, in this culture, those would certainly be signs of, of God's favor. Uh, so if, if, if this guy can't do it, who can? Uh, you know, I, they've got to be thinking, what I know that I'm thinking, and I know that I can't be alone, is I don't know if I'm rich or not, but I'm not in the business of giving away money if it were offered to me. And the few things that I do have, I don't really want to give away. Uh, in fact, I'd like to multiply them, right? Uh, and so uh, this, is, this is certainly uncomfortable for all of us. And, and I had a direction that I, that I wanted to go with this, with this idea, the, the idea of the paradox of Scripture and about how, money, how, about how Scripture says all these, these different things about money and kind of removes easy answers about who's rich and who's not and who's supposed to give away stuff and who's not. Uh, but the teaching team actually brought out an even more vital uh, aspect of, of this idea uh, of, of paradox in Scripture. Uh, and that's the paradox of how Scripture presents the nature and expression of God. And so an absolutely foundational doctrine uh, of our faith is uh, that God expresses himself as Trinity, one God expressed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Well, already we know that that's, that's paradox, and uh, certainly it's mysterious and, and, uh, and many, in many ways beyond our ability to even comprehend. Uh, and so because we, we have trouble comprehending this, and it is, it is a paradox, uh, what we often end up doing is looking at the Old Testament 
seeing God and then trying to fit our understanding of Jesus uh, into that God. And what Jesus is saying here uh, in this text to the young man and then to his disciples is that we must look to the personhood of Jesus. We must look to him to understand the nature of God. The text tells us that Jesus felt love for this man, and he loved him enough to call him to give up a good gift in exchange for the greatest gift. And this is something entirely different than what the ministers of of that time and place were offering. Uh, They could offer a specific set of rules to obey, and they did. This is exactly how you interpret this scripture, and this is exactly how we're supposed to live it out. and, and Jesus says to the man, do you want one more thing to obey, or do you want to follow me? He's saying, I'm infinitely better than one more thing to obey. And so it's an entire reinterpretation and reorientation of the scriptures, uh, a reinterpretation through the lens of Jesus and a, and a reorientation around him. And this is exactly what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. It says that Jesus is the exact representation of God, and so that if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. And so when we get this backwards, we have a tendency to go to Scripture looking to confirm our own viewpoints that are pre-existing and justify our own decisions. And so one, things, one thing that, that we sometimes hear uh, in our church culture is, uh, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Or something I've often said, I just take the Scripture at face value. Uh, but it's, it's often not that simple, right? Because we come across paradox in Scripture, and then we combine that with our own biases, which come from our experiences and our interpretation of our experiences, and we've all got different experiences, right? And when we, when we do that, we've never got a Bible that challenges our existing worldview. It just, it just uh, affirms us. And so I've got some friends. They're actually with us this morning, Josh and Emily, and they spent last, uh, most of the last few years working overseas. Um, and Emily was telling me a story uh, about someone in their small Christian community, and they were gathered for a Bible study one week, and uh, the, the text topic had something to do with wealth and poverty, and one of the girls in Bible study uh, stopped and said, you know, we should probably uh, take a pause here and look around the room and acknowledge that we all come from really privileged backgrounds, and we may not be uh, the best suited to accurately interpret the scripture uh, because we, we really don't know what poverty is like. Uh, and we would likely be wise to uh, get a viewpoint from somebody who has a background that's not like ours uh, to see if they may have a, a different idea about what this text is getting at. And that's a perfect example uh, of what it's like to come to the scripture and say, this thing does have paradox, uh, but I'm not going to use it to justify uh, everything that I already believe. I'm going to allow it uh, to, to potentially uh, allow it to change my mind, to tell me that I may not have everything right. And while scripture does contain paradox, uh, I believe and we believe at grace in elevating scripture, uh, that it is the primary source uh, of knowing God and knowing about God, and it does speak clearly to issues uh, of primacy and scripture. Um, but we don't believe in the idolization of Scripture. Uh, if God's Word is not leading us to be more like Jesus of Nazareth, who associated with people that most of us would be embarrassed to be seen with, but if it instead leads us to consistently confirm our own biases, we can be sure that we're doing it wrong. 
and I do it wrong a lot, uh, but we must allow the Bible to read us as much as we read it. Uh, Billy Graham died, you know, in the last year or two, and uh, early on in his ministry, uh, he had a very pivotal moment because he was, uh, he was questioning uh, what he felt like was the integrity of Scripture. And so he said that in this moment, uh, he said a prayer, and, and he, said, uh, he said, God, I don't understand everything about this book. It seems to contradict what we're learning in modern science. He said, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it, and I'm going to take it in faith, uh, because I trust you, and, and uh, hope that that will be good enough. And he said that, that was a pivotal moment. He, f- he f- had a tangible feeling of, of the Holy Spirit, uh, and that was a foundation that set him uh, for the next five or six decades to the ministry that he had. And I think if I, would, if I were going to, to, to say his prayer a different way, uh, I would say something to the effect of, God, this, this scripture says a, a lot of things that seem to be in tension not only with my experience and what we seem to, be, to know about the world, uh, but all, it, it seems to at times be in contradiction with itself. Um, and I don't know what to do about it. I, uh, you know, there's a, it, it seems a, very confusing at times, uh, but knowing you is good enough. Uh, if, I can, if I can know you, uh, then I can trust that uh, my understanding of the scripture uh, will take care of itself. And, and I think that uh, that Billy Graham prayer and, and that posture uh, is how we, how is the, is the default uh, if we're willing to embrace the paradox of Scripture. And so finally, uh, we look at the paradox of grace. And continuing in verse 28, Peter began to speak to him, Look, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, there is no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive in this age a hundred times as much. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, all with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And so Jesus says to receive eternal life you must sacrifice and Peter Peter says, look, we've given up everything. And Jesus says, yes, and you will be rewarded, both with blessing and with, with difficulty. And then there's this line, many who are first will be last, and the last first. That sounds like a paradox in itself. And so what does it mean? It means that in life, most of us are keeping score. Uh, we're keeping score based on wealth, on appearance, on status, and power. And there will be many people who put lots of points on the board that are exalted on earth, but have entirely neglected the pursuit of eternal life. And there will be many people who have very few points on, on their earthly scoreboard, but their sole pursuit has been eternal life, the kingdom of God. Two weeks ago, uh, we examined uh, a passage of scripture in Mark uh, where Jesus says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and because of the gospel will save it. For what benefit is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit his life. What can a person give in exchange for his life? And Jesus is saying the same thing in our text this week as he said in that, in that text. He's saying the paradox of grace is that we have to give up trying to score points 
if we want to increasingly experience it. And how do we define grace? The clearest explanation I know comes from Dallas Willard when he says, grace is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. If we want to experience God doing for us what we can't do our, for ourselves, we must acknowledge that our points will do us no good. And when we give that up, that's what it means to lose our life in order to save it. When we embrace the paradox of grace, it gives us the ultimate freedom from the never-ending effort of self-justification and experience the young man in this text clearly knew well. It's an acceptance that we are already justified by the person and work of Jesus.